to Jesus Politics, where we bring the scriptures to life and leadership today. Welcome to week seven in our journey through Exodus. This week, as we look through the text in Exodus chapter eight, we see the story sort of start to speed up a little bit. The pacing changes from being so focused on Moses and his conversations that happened between him and Pharaoh and then him and God. Um, and in early chapters, even some of him and the Hebrew people, it uh, starts to speed up and we skip over some of those back and forths um, to where it really becomes more and more apparent that the conversation is happening between God and Pharaoh with Moses as that in-between mediator uh, with that communication. One of the first things I noticed this week was in Exodus chapter 8, the very beginning of that, they skip the part where Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, uh, by the way, will you let my people go? That, that it's one more time, a, a third or fourth time at this point um, that he's asked this question. They skip that dialogue and go straight to, here's the consequence of if you say no. And then before we even hear Pharaoh's answer, uh, Aaron's holding his staff out over the waters and the frogs start to swarm. And so uh, just doing a little bit of uh, background research on that, I discovered that in the Hebrew Bible, um, which that, that in itself would not be necessarily the original Bible, um, but in, in different texts that we've received over the years, uh, a lot of our oldest Bible translations that we have in English uh, came from the the Greek Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that they may have been using in Jesus' own time uh, because the Hebrew language had been sort of subservient to the Greek language, which was used much more all over the place. And while we may think, well, Hebrew is the language of Israel, Israel wasn't a nation at that point. Um, They had long been scattered across uh, that whole region of the world there southern Europe and parts of Asia and over into Africa. And as those people scattered over across the generations, many of them lost touch of their Hebrew language and just for survival sake had to pick up the language around them. And that whole entire area had been taken over by Greece. You may remember the stories of Alexander the Great uh, kind of being one of the leaders that helped do that. And then the Roman Empire where it would eventually shift from Greek into uh, close cousin, the Latin language. But during the the New Testament time, they were still using the Greek uh, in those areas. So their translations, that's when they were writing much more, where we have copies of Old Testament texts, oftentimes were in the Greek and not in the Hebrew. But later parts of the Hebrew and subsequent passages in the Hebrew that we have discovered since then put different dividing markers. And so uh, the original Old Testament text did not have chapters and verses. The original New Testament text did not have chapters and verses. But um, in a number of the Hebrew translations, there is a division 
where the first several verses, first three or four verses, um, where it talks about the, the threat. Um, if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. Then thou will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and in the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come upon you and your people and your servants. Stop. That was actually included in chapter seven is sort of the conclusion. You've just been through the Nile River turning into blood. Uh, and now these frogs are going to swarm out of that if you don't let my people go. And then chapter 8 picks up with, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand over the staff, over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So in between those two chapters, again in the Hebrew text, uh, we would assume Moses actually delivered that message to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said no, or passive-aggressively just ignored him. And so chapter 8 begins with the uh, second plague there, the plague of these frogs. And that that short passage there then ends, and all, all of this is included as the beginning of chapter 8 uh, in most of our Bible translations. Uh, and again, it's a judgment call. Um, all that I noted uh, significantly in there is we no longer have Pharaoh giving an answer to this particular plague. He's warned, and then it just happens. Um, and the response is that the magicians do the same thing with Pharaoh's secret arts, and they make more frogs come up over the land. And uh, as I've mentioned uh, before with the plague of the Nile River turning to blood, I have to strongly question who thought that was a good idea. So we have too many frogs, and they're getting into everywhere, but we can make even more frogs not particularly helpful. And so you have the magicians and Pharaoh, if he's leading them, asking them to do this, not thinking of, about the good of the people, but really thinking about, um, can we show off as well as Moses here? And so in the next passage uh, for day two, we have uh, Pharaoh um, calling for Moses and Aaron. Remember they sat with uh, their water having turned to blood and having to dig around the Nile River to find some kind of fresh water to use. And they were in that position for a week uh, until presumably the, the blood washed downstream or something got a little bit more back to normal. Um, or if it didn't, they were able to find other ways and adapt uh, to that kind of living. I'm, I'm going to personally guess that it was more the first that the effects of that plague just sort of washed away over time. But now with the frogs here, they're sick of it. The people are sick of it. And so Pharaoh finally calls to Moses and Aaron and says, all right, would you ask God to make the frogs go away? Because we can make frogs, but we can't apparently make them go away. And Moses jumps at this and in, in a way that is a little bit I would almost say showing a kind of almost false modesty. He asks Pharaoh, you say the word, when would you like this to be done? And Pharaoh says tomorrow. So Pharaoh gets to pick the time, but this is not really a recognition of Pharaoh's authority. It's a showing that God 
can do whatever he wants whenever he wants and sort of like when the magician says pick a card any card instead of the magician picking the card uh he's telling pharaoh you pick the day pick the day any day and we'll we'll make this happen and so moses says may it be according to your word that the frogs will depart and sure enough uh, although they don't just depart they actually die and so then the Egypt egyptians are left with this bigger problem or another problem, I should say, of what do you do with all these dead frogs that they have in their houses, all around their homes, all everywhere. And so that's, that's an absolute mess. And this is a point where I think we can begin to see um, how some apologists and archaeologists and people who are scholars have studied these plagues, the connection between them. Because the next one is the gnats. And the gnats sort of come out and um, swarm the place. And uh, just the, the bugs, the grossness of, of all of that around them. And some of those scholars will point out that, well, you just have had all of these frog carcasses all over. And so nature's sort of way of cleaning up things like that is to send the bugs in to help help with that decay and um, as they begin laying eggs on these frog bodies and maybe even in these frog bodies that these gnats and these gross things burst out of that and, and they'll they'll track some of these plagues and say there there may be a little bit of cause and effect between one plague and the next um, what is significant is Pharaoh gets to pick the day. God it has kind of his own timing in this. But we have these uh, gnats that come out and it, it sort of, uh, as he, he says to Aaron, strike your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. Well, Egypt is a fairly dry place, um, somewhat less so in the Nile riverbed where they are. But you can imagine their dust being very plentiful. And what they're saying is that the gnats are as plentiful as the dust is in that place. And so they cover everything. They cover the people. They cover the animals. They cover everything. And, and the significant part about this particular plague is that the magicians come out on cue to try to replicate it and do it again, but they're unable to. And the magicians have a bit of a conversion moment where they look at this plague and they say, this is the finger of God. That's a unique phrase that doesn't come up often in the Bible. Um, it's, it's talked about as the, the power of God that sort of wrote the law on the, the tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. And, um, and I believe there's a New Testament reference uh, that's in there as well. But it's a power that's beyond them. And I think by, by the very fact that they're calling it a finger, and not an arm or not a weapon or even a fist they're recognizing that the gnats are a small thing god could have done far worse we're not talking lightning bolts from heaven we're not talking fireballs and you know the apocalypse we're talking a swarm of gnats but that swarm of gnats is far beyond what they are able to control and so uh, in all of this there, there seems to be little bits of relenting in Pharaoh, and then his heart gets hardened. Uh, here we have the magicians that are not just relenting, but they're almost converting. They're saying, 
okay, the God of Moses is bigger than any of the gods that we have. But Pharaoh's heart gets hardened and he stops listening even to his own magicians. And so then there's the flies. And the flies, uh, this plague in particular, is different from the gnats in the fact that it is specifically noted that the flies swarm the Egyptians in their lands, but it leaves the Hebrew people alone uh, in their land of Goshen. And so, again, there's when people come up with archaeological, scientific kind of cause and effect reasons about why it would be this way and uh, why, why we might naturally expect after the gnats would come flies and why they would affect only one part uh, and not the other. But through it all, whether it's the science or whether it's miraculous divine intervention, God is showing different things through these different plagues. He's continuing to show himself as God and Pharaoh as not, and the Egyptian gods as not true gods or, or not anything that is even within his caliber. But there's a sense here where in this particular play, God is saying, and also, these are my people. The Egyptians are not my people, but these Hebrews are my people. There's a sense of uh, separating out. Well, you might say segregating out. That's, that's a poor connotation uh, kind of word in our culture today, but, but a distinction, a, a boundary that's set up that these people are not like the others. And it's not based on what they've done or some kind of intrinsic value of one people being another. It's based on God's choice. He's, he's choosing. These people are the ones that are set aside that I'm claiming as my own. From the uh, position of someone who is um, very in inclusive, that can come across, across as offensive. Why is God picking some people and not others? There's whole theologies that are based around what it means for God to choose and what it means to be chosen out of that. But I think that we need to not miss the point that God doesn't just see everybody the same, that he's really, he's looking in and choosing to provide some extra special care for a certain uh, kind of people. And as, as you go back, it's, it's because of the covenant that he made uh, with their forefathers um, that he's keeping his promise uh, in them and that he's trying to work something uh, in them as well. So there's also a justice aspect of it. Uh, these are the people that have been oppressed by the Egyptians. When Pharaoh uh, sent the people out to go kill all the firstborn children to drown them in the river, it was not, uh, you know, just those who are soldiers, just those who are um, sort of government official types in this that we like to try to blame things on. He told his whole people it was pitting one culture against another. And, um, and there, there are consequences uh, to those actions. And some of that involves justice. And th these are the people that were crying out to God. The Egyptians are not crying out to God. They don't want anything to do with God. They've got their own gods. They're just fine. They're comfortable. They like life the way it is. The Hebrew people are the ones that are asking for help. So God's sending help to those who are asking for help. And he's not sending help to those who are not. So there's a lot that's packed into that kind of chosenness. 
And as this is going on, we need to continue to see, as the text is showing us, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. Pharaoh continues to say no. Even when it gets to the, the, the point of saying, okay, we, we will let you go out, but just not very far. Or why can't you worship here? And Moses points out the way that we're going to worship is going to be flat out offensive to the Egyptians. They're going to call it an abomination. They're going to stone us. We don't want to offend them. We want to make sure we're doing things the way that we think that, that we believe they need to be done, that God is asking us to do. And so Pharaoh finally says, okay, you can go out. And Moses calls him out. He says, now make sure you don't deceive us. Make sure you don't change your mind and say, oh, by the way, uh, we're not going to let you do that. And sure enough, sure enough, as soon as the flies depart, Pharaoh hardens his heart and he did not let the people go. And that's the verse that concludes uh, this week's readings here. Uh, again, I want to point out, uh, this is not just God playing favorites. This is one culture, uh, two cultures really, uh, here that are in conflict with one another. One is crying out to God. The other is not. Everybody has their choice of who they're going to follow. But the Egyptians are choosing to follow Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is choosing to follow himself and to do what he wants to. Um, not to do what God is asking him to do. And in these first plagues in particular, the text points out that it's Pharaoh hardening his heart. It's not God coming in and making him, possessing him, doing things like that. It's Pharaoh who's hardening his heart. And even when he relents and starts to say, okay, maybe I'll let you go for a little bit, or maybe I'll let you go, but just not very far, then he'll change his mind and say, nope, nope, you're not getting anything. There is no relief. There is no release. And so he's, he's showing himself over and over to be a leader that not only does not care about the Hebrews at all, but in fact, he feels threatened by the Hebrews. Um, but he also doesn't really care about his own people, and he's willing to let them suffer for the sake of saving face. And uh, that's not going to work out for him or for God. But I think all of the people, the Egyptians and the Hebrews together, are getting an example of God showing consistently who he is, what his character is, and also Pharaoh showing consistently who he is and what his character is. Thank you for joining us today for Jesus politics and our journey through Exodus. I look forward to hearing your comments in your reading and we will see you next week. This is Tony Franklin. Thank you for joining us for Jesus politics and our journey through Exodus. See you all next Friday.